After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. My knowledge of the police growing up in a, in a very white New Hampshire town mm-hmm. was that the police were friendly and they came to school and I did dare and uh, I would watch Abbott and Costello routines that were like, hey, if you're ever in need, of, in need help, if you ever need a hand, go ask a policeman. They're going to help you out. Even though I, you know, I went through D.A.R.E. too, but I think that that was my only experience of ever speaking face to face with a cop. I still haven't to this day. So what do you want to know about the police? I want to know who governs what the police are allowed to do. Are there federal regulations? Are, are they state regulations? Is it just, you know, municipality by municipality? Who makes these decisions? Where does the money come from? And how has the police force in this country changed over the years? We're talking today with Norm Stamper. Norm was the past chief of Seattle's police department and an officer in San Diego. He is also the author of two books. First, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police, and Breaking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of American policing. Norm, welcome to Civics 101. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. So I guess let's start with brass tacks here. What is the official role of the police department in the United States? Well, the whole purpose behind policing is to uh, help achieve public safety uh, and neighborhood health. So police are identified properly as a a crime-fighting agency, but they also provide many, many other services that are associated with quality of life issues in in any given neighborhood. And is a, a police force constitutionally mandated? How did we decide that we needed one, that we have to have one? No, there is no mandate for policing anywhere. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the interesting phenomena of, of American policing is that we have 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. And each is pretty much a standalone agency, fairly independent uh, from tiny rural uh, police departments to big urban uh, you know, NYPD's got 35,000 police officers. Most police departments have a handful. Uh, if not just one or two. Are there no federal regulations that are, you know, universal amongst all 18,000, or are they completely on their own? One of my favorite themes, I can tell you, is that we do have these 18,000 law enforcement agencies, but we have one constitution. And every single police officer, uh, uh, nearing one million in this country, and all of those agencies are duty-bound to abide by the constitution, and yet we have no national standards. Uh, very different from the British, after whom we model ourselves. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's very problematic, I think. And if you're looking at, at Civics 101 approach to policing, it's important to point out that each of these police departments operates with its own, its own basic policies and procedures. 
Well, let's go to that, about how, how we started. Where did we get this notion of how we run our police department? Before uh, industrialization, uh, before the, the Industrial Revolution, communities, neighborhoods had kind of a, a hue and cry approach to public safety. Somebody notices that a barn's on fire, clangs a bell, runs through the, uh, the dirt roads of a little community and arouses people and, and, and gets them uh, out there to help fight that fire or to chase down somebody who's robbed somebody. Uh, and as we moved from from an agrarian uh, and rural environment to an urban industrialized in- environment, we began to organize. And the early organizing efforts uh, were fraught. There were there were a lot of problems associated with that. And we learned about the British. The British in 1829, uh, through the Metropolitan Police Act, created uh, the very first. Uh, Western democracy organized police force. Uh, representatives from New York and Philadelphia and Boston and other big uh, East Coast cities and Midwest cities traveled to Great Britain to study the Metropolitan Police Act. And they came back with, uh, a, you know, a skeleton uh, vision, really, of, of how to structure uh, a police department. But they failed to include some safeguards that turned out to be a, a pretty glaring omission that caused from the very beginning of the life of this institution a lot of problems. So what were the safeguards that the United States failed to include in their idea for a police force? Well, Sir Robert Peel, who was the Home Secretary, uh, took seven years to convince a reluctant parliament to go along with the idea of an organized police force. During those seven years of political maneuvering, the Home Secretary and parliament went back and forth on what we need to do to make sure that our police force doesn't come across uh, as tyrannical, uh, as militaristic, as aloof or distant from the community. So they built in safeguards uh, to ensure that that would not happen. And the Americans essentially were bad students. They, they, they came back to this country and they created almost overnight a political spoils system. Nepotism ruled. Uh, if, uh, if a mayor appointed a police chief and, and gave that uh, chief the authority to select police officers, very often it was uh, uh, brothers or sons or cousins or uncles and so forth. And corruption uh, developed almost immediately in most of those big city law enforcement agencies. So moving into the current day, uh, I'm curious about how we're training officers. And as there's been a lot of talk about the militarization of police recently, how does the training differ between the military and the police? I think it's very important that your listeners understand that training does play take place in a classroom, of course. It takes place in a variety of other settings where we set up mock scenes and do simulations and the like. But it also takes place in the front seat of a police car. And it takes place in the locker room. And by far, the more powerful uh, form of instruction takes place informally. Always has been the case, probably always will be the case. Military training, on the other hand, starting with basic training uh, is all about learning how to follow orders uh, and and obviously to engage in tactical operations, to become familiar with equipment and weapons and the like. Uh, but the distinction is so terribly important. For an American police officer, the training 
ostensibly is about helping police officers forge these these true partnerships with the community an emphasis on interpersonal communication, on listening skills, uh, on developing patience and restraint, uh, on learning how most effectively to defuse tense situations. And particularly when weapons are involved, that one of the distinctions we can't draw uh, is, is, uh, is that between the military and the police is that the police in our society, tragically, uh, are surrounded by guns. Uh, there are more guns than people in this country. So we have a responsibility to equip our police officers to handle everything from a home invasion robbery to a drive-by shooting in one minute and, and to uh, uh, trying to console parents who have lost a child overnight to a crib death. Uh, it, it's no exaggeration to say that from one minute to the next, police officers can go from one very different kind of task, duty, or responsibility to another. And are police officers currently trained in these sort of de-escalation tactics? They are, uh, but I think it's important to point out that uh, a recent study revealed that uh, the average police officer gets about eight hours of what some might call de-escalation training. It could be as simple as interpersonal communication, but without the real emphasis on on. on on de-escalation. That's a whole body of knowledge. It, it implies a set of skills. It takes a lot of practice. But they spend much more time uh, firing their weapons and, and undergoing defensive tactics training than they do de-escalation. Not that the former is a bad thing. That's a very important, necessary thing. But it's also vital that we teach police officers how to slow things down how to calm things down when they arrive at a scene. You've probably seen YouTube footage of police officers uh, literally screaming at the top of their lungs, sounding like they're out of control. Now, what they're trying to do, of course, ironically, is to achieve control, uh, is to bring stability to that chaotic scene. But too often, uh, they're actually escalating tension and creating a more dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of culture is cultivated within the police force between this kind of disproportionate type of training that happens and then this schizophrenic on-the-job experience? That's a really vital question that police administrators and civic activists and, and uh, civic leaders and rank-and-file police officers are all asking, especially these days in light of recent events. The the culture of American policing is a product, I'm convinced, of the structure, paramilitary, bureaucratic, top-down. Uh, too many agencies, in my view, treat their frontline professionals like de dependent or delinquent children. The disciplinary system is very primitive and very black and white and oftentimes insulting to uh, police officers who engage in such sensitive and delicate and demanding work. So we need to look at that, uh, and we need to understand how this sort of rigid, top-down communication decision-making system within the paramilitary bureaucracy affects attitudes and behavior of police officers. So I look at it this way. The structure produces that culture, and then the culture gives rise to the behavior. And if we're not happy with the behavior, 
I think we what comes to my mind is the Laquan McDonald shooting in Chicago, the uh, Walter Scott shooting in North Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Philando Castile in, in Minnesota, uh, a, a number of controversial police incidents typically resulting in death. Um, are, 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 it, it, it just seems to me that we need to look at those events, study those events, investigate certainly those events, and draw our conclusions and let the chips fall where they may. But we shouldn't just fixate on the individual event. We should ask ourselves, where does that behavior come from? Why is it that the police officer is shouting and screaming at an individual whose attention he wants, but who is more likely than not escalating and, and inflaming passions? Uh, and, and what is it that we can do systemically uh, to produce different kind of behavior? Well, we wanted to look at one specific incident, which was to look at something such as Ferguson, what happened with Michael Brown and Ferguson. And if you could tell us, how did we get there? But it sounds like you're saying we shouldn't be isolating these specific incidents, but we should be looking at the culture at, at large. I suppose what I'm really saying is, yes, of course, we must look at the individual events. But once we've sealed up that investigation, it's now been completed, uh, we need to ask ourselves, what led to the tragic outcome? What led to, in this case, an 18-year-old young man uh, 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 dying? Uh, at the hands of police. Is there a way that that could have been prevented? And to my way of thinking, almost all, almost all controversial police shootings that we've, that we've been exposed to in the last several years could have been prevented. Now, look at the Michael Brown in incident. Here we have an 18-year-old kid, I'll call him that for the moment, who... Uh, 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 talks back to a police officer who tells him to get up on the sidewalk. Profanities are exchanged. It wasn't just one-sided. Uh, and the officer gets hooked. He's, uh, uh, he's been provoked. So he puts his car in reverse and, uh, and, and backs up at a very reckless rate of speed, circles around, and entraps himself with Michael Brown and his companion standing right next to the door, the driver's side door of this police car. And then Darren Wilson tells the grand jury later that he felt that he was trapped and that he felt that he was being assaulted by a, by a, a behemoth. Uh, a, a, I think he used the word demon. He said he, he looked like the Hulk, but he was sitting behind the wheel of his car trapped in his, in his vehicle. Uh, he had his gun out. Having not seen a gun, but fearing for his life nonetheless because of Michael Brown's menacing uh, uh, demeanor and, and his uh, proximity, which he, the officer, had actually brought about, uh, felt that, as he put it to the grand jury, that, that his life was in danger. And the consequence, of course, was uh, another one of these controversial police killings. One thing we don't look at nearly enough is the tactics that the officers used uh, that set up this fatal outcome. And that's critically important because every time we break down one of these incidents, we critique it, we debrief it, we place it into the larger context of our training, our supervision, our, our tactics, we have the opportunity to prevent the next one. And, and uh, 
I think what, excuse me, what we learned in Ferguson was that we had a, an entire police department, indeed an entire city, uh, that was engaged in systemic discrimination. There was raw racism. We saw that in some exchanged emails and some notices and so forth that circulated within the organization and City Hall. And we saw that, that police officers were engaged in what's commonly called policing for profit. And the Department of Justice report for anyone interested in this aspect of policing uh, would do well to read. The, the report says that the city manager, indeed supported by the city council, was putting pressure on the police department to generate more revenue. How, do you, how does the police department generate revenue? Tickets and arrests. So, so that's, that's an unholy alliance between the police department and, and the city fathers. And it's also uh, sending exactly the wrong message to police officers. Given the current you know, aggregate climate of the nation's police departments, what do you see as the reasonable foreseeable future? There are a lot of practical uh, intermediate steps that can be taken, uh, and, and they're still fairly ambitious. One recommendation I've made, we need to have, I think, a set of unifying standards that will help us answer the question, what's a professional law enforcement agency? Indeed, what's a professional police officer? And on the strength of those standards, we ought to certify agencies and license cops. And if you can't or won't play by the rules, then you're going to lose your certification or your license. The police officer who shot and killed Tamir Rice had been fired in Cleveland, Ohio, had been fired by the Independence, Ohio Police Department, 19 minutes away by car, uh, a couple of years prior to the time that Cleveland picked him up. And why did they fire him? Because he fell apart on the, on the pistol range, because he was an emotional wreck. He may have been a nice guy, the deputy chief who wrote up his termination package essentially said. You know, we're, we regret, you know, that you didn't make it. But you're not police material. We can't afford you. The community cannot afford you. And so they fired him, and yet Cleveland uh, hired him and then a short time later, he shot and killed a lonely 12-year-old boy on a snowfield in Cleveland. Um, th those kinds of images ought to haunt us because not only has that 12-year-old been denied the rest of his life, not only has, has his family been torn apart uh, and the community uh, re reduced to collective grief, we have a situation in which easily that Controversial shooting didn't, didn't need to happen, could have been prevented. So we need to set these standards and we need to enforce them. And you can't lose a job in Ferguson and get hired in New York or San Diego and hired in Seattle or wherever. Well, Norm Stamper, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Norm Stamper. He's the former chief of Seattle's police department and author of To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. And that is it for Civics 101 today. Our show was produced by Jimmy Gutierrez and our executive producer is Erica Janik. 
Our team includes Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, and Ben Henry. Music in today's episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And if you've got questions about the government, let us be your detective and find the answers. Our website is civics101podcast.org, and you can email us at civics101 at nhpr.org. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.